Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to follow Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not messing anything up if I move that aside, am I, Kevin? Okay. This is one of those Sundays that uh, demands a little extra prayer. Going into a sermon going into hearing these texts. I prayed earlier this morning with with the worship team that all of us here this morning would be doubly attentive. Not to me, but to to God's word. Um, You already heard those hard words in the gospel. Uh, I'm kind of glad I'm preaching Colossians this summer. Um, you know, that's one of those gospel readings. You get to the end of it and you say, this is the word of the Lord and, you, and this is the gospel of the Lord. And you, and you sort of pause before you say that and say, wow. Yeah, that's not something I take on lightly. Well, to be honest, Colossians isn't a whole lot easier when the first sentence is, wives, submit to your husbands. I know that in many places... That's about as far into the passage as some people get, and they've already begun to check out. Well, uh, this is one of those passages to struggle with. Not only because it tackles the relationship between husbands and wives, not only because it contains that somewhat badly translated, certainly badly misunderstood words like submit, Uh, the fact that it talks about slaves and doesn't immediately go on a rampage arguing for their freedom. It simply accepts the conditions given in the culture. For all those kinds of reasons and others to boot, this is a hard passage to take on board. But Paul surprises us. The first surprise, and I'm just going to tick these off, and we'll explore some of this. The first surprise is he respects women. I know Paul has a bad rap. He's dismissed roundly, even by some scholars as a misogynist, a woman hater. Uh, It is a bad rap. Um, It's a bad rap, not least because of a passage like this. Uh, Another surprise, he takes children seriously. That would have been jarring to anybody in Paul's day. He takes slaves with great earnestness. And you know from the follow-up book to Colossians Philemon that, um, that he yearns for a redefining of relationships between masters and slaves. Uh, the second big surprise is, uh, we'll call it the male challenge. Just because it begins, wives submit to your husbands, Don't be seduced into thinking that Paul doesn't want to reorder how men think and behave. Third surprise. But this really shouldn't be a surprise by this stage of our treatment of Colossians, should it? It's that the Lord Jesus reigns over all, over all relationships, 
over all kingdoms, over everything. So if you dig into this passage and you look at each one of these different people groups Paul's talking about, wives, children, slaves, masters, each one of them is addressed by Paul, but in Christ-centered terms. Everything Paul says to them is to reorder them and reorient them in relationship to Jesus. So he does give a hard word to wives about their relationship with their husbands, but he qualifies it as, as is fitting in the Lord. Children are admonished to, to obedience. That was not new in Paul's day. Kids right and left would have been urged, um, yeah, urged as mild. They would have been beaten into submission. Paul encourages children to obey their parents because this pleases the Lord. Slaves, they get a twofold Christ reorientation. Do it for the Lord, and it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Masters, then, and this would have been really jarring. Think, think of the slaves standing in the back of, of, of the, uh, the house where the Colossians gathered for worship, this little house church. Think of the slaves who, who came along with the rest of the household, and, and they're standing in the back. And they hear Paul address the masters and tell them, you have a master in heaven. So all these surprises, and yet Paul's entirely consistent Entirely consistent with what we heard him say last week, for instance. Remember these two verses? These, you really need to rehear because they spill right into today's section. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And even in the earlier verses that we heard last week, Paul was busily at work trying to reorient us to think, not individualistically, but to think in terms of family, to think in terms of household, to think in terms of of interdependent relationships. We're all to bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, all our relationships, but especially in our today's passage, marriages that get this right, all relationships that get this right are windows into the gospel for us all. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to, I want to dive through these windows into the gospel. Come at this passage, this tough passage, from different angles and see how the gospel really comes alive for us and maybe helps us to hear differently these words that we thought we understood. So here's the first window into the gospel. I'm going to call it whole life discipleship. You know, the, the book of Colossians is a discipleship book. It's, it's all about maturity And maturity in Paul's vocabulary is all about becoming more like Jesus. That's all it is. (laughs) That's all it is. Becoming more like Jesus. But not just in the sense that, you know, we kind of put on this churchy face. That we reserve it for our, our devotional life. But becoming more like Jesus. Maturity for Paul is a whole life deal. So the passage portrays a Christianity that is whole life, relationships that are two-way, and a motivation that is Christ-centered. One of my teachers said this, true spirituality for Paul involves recognizing our reciprocal responsibilities in our daily lives and relationships for Christ's sake 
He said our natural tendency is to read these verses to find out what others owe us. I mean, just think about that for a second. Husbands are thinking right after that first sentence. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, bring it, Paul, bring it. Submit, babe. That's the way we hear. We should read these verses, Peter Adams says, to find out what we owe others. Martin Luther said it this way, a Christian lives not in herself, but in Christ and in her neighbor. Otherwise, he or she's not a Christian. They live in Christ through faith, through Christ in faith, in neighbor through love. By faith, we're caught up beyond ourselves into God. By love, we descend beneath ourselves into our neighbors. When I was a kid growing up in the Lutheran church, um, I was struck early on by, by a prayer we used to pray at the end of every service, after communion. This is how it sounded then. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through this salutary gift, Holy Communion. And we implore you of your mercy to strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. That's the phrase that somehow captivated me. That's the whole of our lives. That's what Paul's getting at here. Our whole lives are to live outside ourselves in worship and faith towards God and in fervent love towards one another. There's not a word in there about self-care. Just think about that. Paul said it in verse 17 already. His whatever you do already makes it clear Christ's rule extends to the whole of our existence. Whatever you do, with whomever you're in relationship, that's where the gospel gets worked out. In our mundane daily lives, wherever we are, at home, the domestic sphere, out in the marketplace, in the public sphere, at home and at work. And the passage then reminds us that relationships are reciprocal, with duties on both sides. That's the really remarkable, that's the revolutionary thing about the way Paul sets this verse up. He's not just saying, you know, wives submit, boom, period. Kids obey, period. Slaves get in line, period. He addresses with just as much vigor and intensity both sides of the relationship. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters are equal in being treated as members of the Christian community and being called to treat each other as responsible human beings to whom they're related in some way. Do you see how radically Paul's redefining relationships? It's no wonder that everywhere he went proclaiming this gospel and when people were listening intently and took on board what he was saying, he usually got in trouble. Tossed in jail, run out of town, because it disturbed the economy even. Paul, finally, in this section talking about every aspect of our lives and relationships, whether family or work, is redefining those relationships in relationship to Jesus. And that's what we've already seen throughout the letter. Faced with the challenges of following Jesus in a hostile or 
almost more difficult, indifferent society, Colossians orients us around the word of the gospel and the majesty of Christ, showing us who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that works out in everyday life and the relationships of ordinary men and women. So that's one window. Reciprocal, interdependent relationships, whole life theology. So we just need to be clear about that, that when Paul's talking, he's talking about in terms that we can understand about the very thing that is the fabric of our lives, relationships, those fundamental ties that we all have. Now, another window uh, that Paul has, he's already flagged for us back in chapter one. You remember that glorious hymn to Christ where he, he talked about his creation theology. Paul says, fundamental to our nature as human beings is the fact that we're created male and female. It's impossible to be human without being one or the other. I could get stoned for saying that sentence in some places in our culture today. I mentioned a moment ago that I'm, you know, the, the, the term that, that we often hear to describe relationships between men and women is in, in evangelical circles is, is complementarian. I, I find that word, that word weak and, and, and passive. The word interdependent is really what Paul's getting at. A Christian understanding of human beings tells us we're not isolated individuals, completely self-sufficient, self-subsistent, autonomous. We need God and we need each other. And that's expressed radically in this passage, in our need for the other, across this central distinction which runs through the whole of humanity, gender. So, little sidebar, don't believe the lie rampant in the culture that gender is merely a social construct, a fabrication of the human imagination. A third window, uh, Paul mentions it right at the outset. It, he, he gets at the primary purpose of marriage. In our society, the, the primary purpose of marriage is companionship. You can see that in the Bible, but in the Bible we see a different purpose. Genesis 2.18, why is it not good for Adam to be alone, for man to be alone? Why did God create Eve? For what purpose? What drove God to institute marriage? It's not good, not because Adam's lonely... He may or may not be, but quite simply because the job's too big for him to do alone. And so he's given, and this word is very intentional in the Bible, he's given a helper, not merely a companion. If Adam was just lonely, a companion would be plenty to sit with him on the garden bench, to hold hands and so on. But although no doubt Eve would have been a splendid companion... She's given to Adam as his helper, which simply means one who works alongside so that both together can do the task of marriage. So here we have the purpose of marriage as God intended to be. Marriage is for the purpose of serving God. And that's what Paul says in Colossians. Marriage is for the purpose of serving God together. It's for the purpose of fulfilling our calling by God to be the stewards of this world companionship's not the primary fundamental purpose of marriage. Now, just so you hear me right, I'm, I'm not saying, Paul is not saying that husbands and wives shouldn't work for a healthy relationship 
What I am saying is that we need to remember that our marriages are instituted by the Creator in the context of our service to Him in His world. If you're married, by all means, pursue intimacy with your spouse. By all means, work to communicate and communicate well. By all means, learn to resolve conflicts. But don't just stop there. Don't minimize marriage. And don't let that become your overall goal. For marriage to work and to work well, families need a transcendent purpose for coming together, remaining together, and raising kids. And that transcendent purpose is given in Genesis 2 and reinforced here in Colossians 3. It's to serve God and God's purposes in the world. So the primary purpose of marriage is outside marriage and outside the house and outside the family. So here in this passage, um, here's now a fourth window. Paul gives us two general principles to govern personal relationships. Here they are. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the second, whatever you do, work at it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So the first thing we have to learn, if I'm a Christian, to treat other people as if I were Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul's now refining his understanding of what it means to be mature. If I'm a Christian, I'm called by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to treat other people as if I were Jesus Christ. Remember, maturity is becoming more like Jesus. That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in somebody else's name is to do it as his representative. You know, when, when, when David stood on the field of battle facing Goliath, He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I'm not coming in my own name. I'm coming as his representative. So to the Christian, to do everything in the name of Jesus Christ is to do it as if you were Jesus Christ. I've got to learn, if I'm a Christian, to treat other people with the respect and the consideration, the thoughtfulness and the graciousness with which Jesus would treat them. But then there's the second verse, which is the exact opposite. It's to learn to treat people as if they were Jesus Christ. So it means learning to do everything as unto the Lord. Now the roles are reversed. And we learn to treat every person with the graciousness, the humility, the understanding, and the courtesy, not now that he would give to them, but that I would give to him. So those two principles that Paul embeds and kind of uh, frames all these particular words to treat other people as if they were Christ and as if I were Christ, those words are as realistic as they are revolutionary. This is not, one writer said, idealistic rubbish. This is practical advice about personal relationships. So here's how, here's how I'd like to, to kind of draw all this together. You know, we've, been, we've been going through these different windows, seeing how Paul makes the gospel come alive in practical application in our relationships. Um, and I'm going to do it with my wife's help. Um, some years ago, Nancy coined a term. Uh, it took me a while to get used to this term. It took, heck, it took me a while to even say it at first. Uh, but the word is, and this is what I, I think she's right, Paul is talking about here. The word is familying. Okay? 
family So put family and then add ing. Okay, so it has, it has a kind of active sense. For you grammar freaks, it's a gerund. Okay? But that's Nancy's term for what Paul's proposing. Now, Nancy is clever, and, and she is a delightful wordsmith. Uh, but just so you know that this is not just fiction, what she's talking about is what Paul has always rattling around in the back of his mind. It's the word oikos. You know it from yogurt, okay? <laughs> George, what does oikos mean? Yeah, household. But when, when Paul, Paul knows what anyone of his day would have known, that oikos is not just family like nuclear family. That, that, that would have been a strange concept to anyone in Paul's day. It's extended family. And that doesn't mean just, you know, grandma and grandpa are too old and decrepit, and so they need to be cared for. It doesn't just mean a few uh, adult children who come home because they don't have good enough jobs yet. It doesn't just mean, sorry, I'm, I couldn't forget. <laughs> um, it, it, it doesn't just mean cousins, aunts, and uncles. It, it means, in some cases, people who work in the, in the family business. It means slaves. And when you hear slaves in Paul's context, you know, don't think 19th century America not that being a slave in Paul's day was you know, a piece of cake or a wonderful existence, but take slaves out of the picture in, in ancient Rome and, and nobody's working. I mean, slaves in, in a Roman household were the gas, electric, and water system. I mean, they, they were, and the teachers. So kids were homeschooled and their teachers their pedagogues were slaves. And all of those people together, the whole fabric, the whole interrelated network of relationships, that's oikos, that's household, that's extended family. That's what Paul's talking about. So this is what Paul means by family. He's focusing on the relational processes that are the vehicles the Holy Spirit has always used for the formation of faith. I mean, really vibrant faith. A network of relationships, absent that, faith doesn't get off the ground. Faith is not just a me and Jesus transaction. Familying has a rich biblical and historical rootage Jesus' ministry from beginning to the end was a process of familying. You see it most poignantly at the cross. Remember that gorgeous scene where Jesus looks down from the cross at his mother and says to Mary, pointing to John, woman, behold your son, and then turns to John and says, son, behold your mother. He's redefining family in that moment. His whole ministry was rooted in an extended family, the 12 disciples. Other hangers-on, the whole network of unnamed people you see in the book of Acts. 
the earliest glimpses we have of the Christian church are stories of family. Any church Paul's writing to, Colossae included, is an extended family meeting in a house. Familying happens most significantly, as I've said, in extended family groups. This is not and never has been just the work of parents or a nuclear family functioning alone. Can you begin to see and imagine how crucial this is today when so many people live in isolation and are cut off from this vital faith-forming web of relationships? Can you, can you sense the calling on all of us to welcome into our lives and into our homes those who don't enjoy this kind of oikos or experience of family. Let me intensify the calling. Familying is a vital way to welcome same-sex attracted brothers and sisters in Christ struggling to live chaste and faithful lives. One of the bright lights in the Anglican Church in North America is a young New Testament scholar named Wesley Hill who writes eloquently about the struggle to remain celibate as a same-sex attracted young man. He lives with his sister's family. I was talking to a friend of mine one day in Harrisonburg, Virginia, one of our priests, Aubrey Spears, and he confessed to me, he said, you know, he has five kids, um, loves his kids, And he said, I used to pray that none of my kids would grow up gay. He said, I don't pray that now. What I pray is that if one of my children were same-sex attracted, that there would be a family, a Christian family, that would welcome them in and make them a part of their family circle. Nurture them, love them, receive their gifts, help them to remain faithful and chaste as we are all called to do. To bring this back together with everything else I've said, you you can hear this, can't you? Family itself is not the end goal. Familying is for the sake of God's mission in the world. So programs that allow for multiple generations to be a part of a church community together can help the process of family, but impact-rich familying relationships don't end with programs. Familying does, of course, just happen, but there's every sign that it's just happening for fewer people, especially kids. So I believe we believe, and I know a lot of you believe, that as local faith communities, we can structure or restructure ourselves for family, and in so doing, we'll thrive. Let me leave you with just a few questions. Questions you can take into your week and ponder. Who do I know in my church? Who do you know right here at Apostle? Who do you know who's in need of family?
Can you see their face? Do you know their name? Who in my church community is being intentionally familyed by my church? Do they need support, encouragement? What systems or programs here intentionally create space for familying by our church community? And here's a really important question as you get ready to move into new space, into a new neighborhood, into a new future. How could our church use our skills in familying to connect with our community? Let's pray. Oh God, just as you have made things right between me and you, so make them right between me and those with whom I live today. The members of my family, the people I work with, friends and strangers I will meet. Enable me to live wisely and lovingly with them all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.